This is the Earth Regenerators Podcast. Welcome to the Earth Regenerators Radio Hour. Hello everybody, my name is Jacob Seidler and today I am joined here by Gail Cohn and we are going to talk about our first episode of Earth Regenerators Stories where we're setting out to interview some of the most active people here on the platform for you to learn more about what they're up to, what their personal stories are and what they're excited for in the future. So. Hello, Gail. Nice to have you here. Hi, Jacob. Great to be here. So my first question, who are you? Hi, everyone. I'm Gail Colon, and I'm a volunteer with Earth Regenerators. I've been a volunteer for about two years now. I'm also co-director of One Earth Conservation. Uh, It's a nonprofit that does parrot conservation in Latin America. I'm also a grant writing consultant. That's what I do to help pay the bills because One Earth doesn't have enough funding to, to give me the hours I need to not have to do other work. Um, I'm the mother of a 24-year-old daughter, and I'm a wife, and I live in Queens in New York City. We also have a 31-year-old little cockatiel you might hear in the background named Dusty. Impressive. And... Um, And I've been in New York most of my life, except for I went to undergraduate uh, at Stony Brook University, which is on Long Island, which really is New York also. Uh, I did get my master's degree in zoology at Colorado State University. So that was my only time living outside of the the state of New York. Um, Although I have traveled somewhat when I was younger. And uh, yeah, I think that's a, a good start. Amazing. Already so many things that I would want to branch into. Um, Well, you saying that you've been in New York pretty much all your life, that makes it even more interesting to me how you got into regeneration, because that seems very unusual and there's not that much nature in New York as far as I've heard or seen. I was actually born an animal lover. From the, as long as I can remember, I've always, always loved animals. Animals have been my passion. Um, when I was very young, I really loved dogs. Wanted to have a dog so bad. My parents said, no, 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 never had a dog. Um, but I got into birds because um, when I was around 11 years old, my, par- my parents bought me and my sister, I have one younger sister, um, a parakeet, a little budgie. Um, and ever since then, on and off, we've had uh, birds in our family. Um, and I decided that initially I was thinking of becoming a veterinarian, um, but I decided I really wasn't that interested in medicine. And I was inspired by watching Jane Goodall on TV. I'm a lot older than you. <laughs> so I grew up in the 60s. 
And that's when uh, Jane Goodall was kind of, you know, she was a young woman. And that's when you could see her on all the nature programs doing her work with the chimps. So she was my inspiration. And that's why I went as far as getting a master's in zoology. Um, at that time, wildlife conservation was really not yet a career path. It's It was just kind of starting at that time. And uh, you'll find this interesting in that um, I decided not to go on. The original plan was to get a PhD in zoology and be a professor. But when I was in grad school, it was all about using the animals to get published Mm -hmm. and to move on the tenure track. It wasn't as much about helping the animals, which is really what Mm -hmm. I wanted. And I'd always been very, very into and interested in the arts as well. So I did a total change. I went from a master's degree in zoology to coming back to New York City and going for an associate's in illustration at Parsons School of Design. I also have a background in art. And I, I... I kind of went on that career path for a while. That's when computer graphics was in its infancy. And I was, I had, (laughs) I remember taking classes on Apple II computers at Parsons. Wow. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) Uh DOS-based, I mean, really primitive. But after that, I left and uh, I was kind of self-taught. I got uh, to be on those first little Macintosh computers with the black and white screens, the little tiny ones. Um, And that led me eventually to get into the field of computer animation. And I worked um, as in the computer animation field for about two, three years, something like that. Um, I had a very twisty, windy, curvy career path. I then went into computer graphics as like a desktop publisher, injured my hands doing a repetitive strain injury from that so i had to change again got into working in local government here in queens most people don't know that each borough has a president (laughs) so i got a job working for the queens borough president um and that's where i learned a lot about local government and also about fundraising i was given the task to be a kind of liaison to the nonprofits in Queens um, to help them learn how they can raise money from various sources. Um, And I also processed grants that the borough president used to give out to the nonprofits. And that led me to my next employer, which was a local performing arts center in Queens called Queens Theater in the Park. So as you can see, I really was in the art space more Mm -hmm. with a little blip in government for a while. Um, But then uh, for various reasons, including that I I had my daughter while I was still at the borough president's office and then... Uh, my father-in-law developed Alzheimer's and I was kind of a sandwich generation, juggling child, father-in-law work. So I needed more flexibility. So I left my job and became a grant writing consultant. And so so I've been doing that since 2006. And my, all my experience at my other jobs really helped me with that. Um, in the meantime, during all that time, I was I continued to be a volunteer. I volunteered with um, the Bronx Zoo. I was a docent. I volunteered with the New York City Sierra Club, where I was a chair of their Endangered Species Committee. 
Um, mm -hmm. I helped start a networking group uh, through a bigger group called uh, Gotham, Gotham City Networking. We created a, a small group called Gotham Green that was for green businesses. Um, I trained with Al Gore's Climate Reality Project in 2013 and became a climate activist. The way I got into Earth Regenerators is I had been following, I had heard Joe interviewed on a podcast many years ago by someone else I really like, the Reverend Michael Dowd. <laughs> and I really liked what Joe had to say. So I started following him on Facebook. And, um, and it was then during the pandemic that I saw he was starting this study group. So at that point, that's when I, I decided to join. And I, I'll go into later while I, why I kind of stopped getting, being so involved with Climate Reality Project. Um, mm. But that was a very long answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Exactly like that. So on that long and long and windy road, um, slowly, slowly towards regeneration projects, what did you, or when you first came across the topic, what did regeneration mean to you? And how has that idea maybe changed in your head as you've learned more, has more, had more experiences? The one thing I didn't talk about in that long, windy path is how I ended up with One Earth Conservation. So let me back up a second and talk about that. Um, I am co-director with a woman named Laura Kim Joyner. And Laura Kim was giving a workshop on nonviolent communication. So I went to attend the workshop, and I should mention both she and I are Unitarian Universalists, and she's a Unitarian Universalist minister. So I walk into this workshop, and there's this little woman wearing a minister's collar, scrubs that have parrots all over them, and animal <laughs> puppets all over the floor. And I'm going, what does this have to do with nonviolent communication? <laughs> <laughs> but I was immediately intrigued because I'm an animal lover. Um, needless to say, I loved her workshop and I went to a couple more and um, she's the one who she has been doing in the field, avian conservation work with parrots in Latin America for more than 35 years at this point. Wow. Um, the way I describe her to people, she laughs when I do this, is um, she's like the Jane Goodall for parrots. <laughs> so I was so intrigued. I went up to her. I chatted with her. I stayed in touch. And I offered to help volunteer uh, with some grant writing for her to help her raise some money for her work. And after we worked together for, it was less than a year, uh, she had been thinking of starting a nonprofit, and we decided to do it together. Um, we've become very, very close friends at this point. Um, and so we started One Earth, oh, unofficially in 2015, officially 2017. But, you know, it takes a long time to get the paperwork and all that to become a nonprofit in the U.S. Um, so, but we have been working together since 2015. So that's about seven years at this point. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, that, that is where my heart is. That's the regeneration work that really means the most to me. And for me, regeneration has to do with um, biodiversity and restoring biodiversity as much as you can. 
and we focus specifically on parrots, but parrots are a kind of keystone species. So mm-hmm. if you help parrots, you're also helping the trees and you're helping the other birds and the bugs and, and just the general ecosystem systems of where they live. Um, so that's how I approach regeneration is mainly through uh, biodiversity restoration. Mm-hmm. Okay, before I ask more about One Earth, I have to back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Unitarian Universalists. What does that <laughs> mean to you? Oh, and you what, what, what role does that play in your life? Uh, it's Believe it or not, it's a, it's a kind of religion. It's a very liberal religion. Uh, basically, uh, we call ourselves UUs for short. Uh, UUs, <laughs> there's no specific dogma. There is some principles that we live by, such as... Uh, Every person has inherent dignity and worth. Um, there should be a fair and equitable way to vote, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But there's no, so many UUs are, do believe in God, many don't. And you can mm-hmm. be a UU either way. And it, it's a very small religion. I mean, in the U, I think in the, the Unitarian Universal Association, there's maybe about 200,000 people who are members, mm-hmm. but it is around the world. Um, I'm actually less involved with UUs than I used to be now Mm -hmm. at this point for various reasons I won't go into. But uh, it's been important to me because it connected me with Laura Kim more than anything Mm -hmm. else. And Mm -hmm. I did do some of my climate activist work through my UU congregation as well. So it had some importance there too. Mm. Interesting. And what's the basic worldview that you subscribe to in Unitarian Universalism? What, 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 because I've, it seems to me like that might be actually a really keystone thing in the way that you think about the world. Well, it's, it's a, a free and responsible search for truth. So it's, it's not accepting something just because someone tells you it's so. To be mm-hmm. open and curious and to question, questioning is encouraged. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of religious religions, they tell you what you're supposed to believe, and that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, so you use are not like that at all. So mm-hmm. I actually think it's a really important way to be in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. But many people don't agree, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, all right, One Earth. It's 2015, 2000 to 2017. What made you decide, I'm going to start my own NGO now? Because that's a pretty big step, no? Well, it was partly, I mean, I had all these years of experience working with nonprofits. So I I'd learned a lot about what it takes to run a nonprofit. And, and then Laura Kim had been wanting to do this. And it just made sense for to be able to expand the work she was doing. We needed to raise a way to raise money. Initially, we thought about just going through what they call fiscal sponsor, which we mm-hmm. did do until we had our official nonprofit designation. We had a, a, a sponsor, they're called Foster Parrots in Rhode Island. And they're a very large sanctuary for abandoned, neglected, and abused parrots, kind of like a dog Mm -hmm. or a cat shelter. Um, 
But there's not a lot of flexibility with that. There are a lot of funders that will not fund you if you're going through a fiscal sponsor. And we really wanted to be able to go after things like money from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which we have. Mm-hmm. We, we had one grant that's almost over, and we have a new grant that's about to begin. We couldn't mm-hmm. have gotten that those funds if we had just remained with foster parents. Um, mm. So that was a big reason. But it also gave us uh, a way to sharpen our vision, uh, to have a mission, um, to bring in other people to work with us, and to just have more legitimacy in the world in general. And when you're working in other countries, I think that's really important. Mm. Um, and right now we work in six countries in Latin America. Okay. Do you want to take us a little bit along the journey of what was the first brainstorming like, like the basic idea behind Wonderful Alliance? And then what does it look like now? What does your work look like now? Well, you know, part of it was already established in that Laura Kim had been doing this work on her own for, at that time, it was about maybe 30 years Uh, a little Mm -hmm. less than 30 years. Um, So it wasn't like we were starting from scratch, but Mm -hmm. we did go through um, a whole process of working out, you know, what's our mission? Who are our stakeholders? Who are going to be our allies? How are we going to do this work? That sort of thing. And I can tell you that um, uh, I don't have the mission memorized, (laughs) but um, we, we basically go into countries where the people are marginalized, where the birds are in trouble, where there's not a lot of attention or resources for various reasons, but often because they're more dangerous places to be, not always, Mm -hmm. uh, but for whatever reason. Um, And then Laura Kim, because she's a minister, and she's also a a certified trainer in nonviolent communication, she has really wonderful social skills. So Mm -hmm. she can go into these communities and she knows how to talk to the people. And we're very much about community conservation. The Mm -hmm. older model of, and and I should say, and also about decolonization. So that the older model of conservation used to be, you know, someone from Europe or or America swoops in, usually a white person, usually a man, but not always, um, and says, this is what we're going to do, telling the people there what what has to be done, maybe not even involving them, doing their stuff, gathering their data, and then leaving. Um, And that doesn't work. It's not sustainable for so many reasons. So what we do, and it's mainly Laura Kim, um, she goes in, she gets to know who the stakeholders are, Uh, She gets to know what the local people want. What do they want? Do they want to help their parrots? And if so, how do they want to help their parrots? And and there's some education, you know, that maybe the people are not aware that their parrots are in trouble or, or why they're in trouble or whatever. But it's very much a partnership. It's also going in and speaking to other stakeholders, such as local NGOs, government agencies, local landowners, um, you know, th- those are th- the main kind of people. And in some of the places where we work, uh, I'll just name the country. I won't get more specific than that because it's Honduras. Um, it's really dangerous there. 
There's drug mm-hmm. trafficking. There's illegal logging. There's the poaching of the the you know the illegal wildlife trade. I mean, there are guns involved. There are, there are literally people who have died, or mm-hmm. or attempts have been made on their life that we know. Um, so it's not easy work at all. Uh, a lot of the people we work with are indigenous people. Um, and so then there's the culture, you know, they, their culture is different and, you know, you have to work with them in, within their culture. Um, sometimes there's even language barriers, but that's less of an issue because, uh, Laura Kim is fluent in Spanish. Mm. And I should tell you the countries we work on are Guyana, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, Paraguay, and Suriname. Mm -hmm. And two of them, Guyana and Suriname, the taking of wild parrots is still legal there. So Mm -hmm. the issues are a little different. Um, She's trying to convince those countries to make it illegal. But even when it's illegal, there's still a lot of poaching, which brings me to our new campaign that we're going to be working on, and you're going to be surprised to hear this, maybe not, (laughs) uh, is that parrots should not be pets ever. Mm-hmm. Now, here I am with a pet bird behind me, right? <laughs> but, but I got him 31 years ago. I didn't know at the time. But people might think, well, you know, people are breeding the birds here, and it's illegal here in the U.S. to bring in uh, animals from the wild, you know, parrots and so forth. Uh, so why, why does having a, a pet bird impact that? Well, it drives the demand, you go onto YouTube and you see, oh, look at the cute parrot riding the bicycle. Never mind that parrots are not supposed to be riding bicycles. But, uh, <laughs> but um, it makes people want them as pets. And therefore, there is still bird. There are still birds that are brought in illegal here, illegally here in Europe and in Europe and in other places. It's legal, legal like the Middle East, uh, for example, and other places, uh, and also locally. People keep mm. parrots as pets right there in Honduras. But a lot, first of all, a lot of birds die in the process of mm. first catching them, poaching them. Often they'll cut down trees to get to the chicks because they tend to nest in holes that are high up. Um, mm. So the many of the chicks will die just from that. Mm. If they survive, they are then put in bags or cages or whatever under very bad circumstances their feet not fed properly so again just transporting them a lot of them die mm. um and then when they're adopted as pets or bought as pets people don't know how to care for them because they are mm. noisy they are messy they need a lot of attention because they're very intelligent they need to be fed properly they need mm. medical attention um people don't realize that they don't make good pets Mm. You know, I mean, my bird has lasted this long because we take very good care of him, but I had to learn how to do that. You know, I didn't know Mm. it when I first got him. And we're not saying if you have a pet parrot to release it. No, that would be bad because most of them would not be able to survive. They wouldn't know how to take care of themselves in the wild or a cat may get them or whatever. But we are saying when the parrot you have now is not with you anymore, Adopt one from one of these sanctuaries that are overflowing with unwanted pets Mm. or get a a pet that's more suitable, like a dog or a cat that are that Mm. are domesticated animals. Parrots are not. Even if they're bred Mm. to be pets, they're still wild animals. 
Mm. Um, so we're really going to be working with foster parents and with a coalition of other groups to make the message Save the Parrots as important and well-known as Save the Whales. <laughs> because if we save the parrots occur on four continents, they are uh, a far, they call them farmer of the forest. They, they um, eat seeds and then poop them out or they drop them. So they plant new trees. And so if you save the parrots, you're saving forests and you're also saving the people who live with them, who are often poor and marginalized people. So mm-hmm. there you go. <laughs> you got an earful there. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, out of curiosity, are there already other species where it's illegal to hold them as pets? Probably yes, right? So this is not a completely new category. Oh, yeah. I mean, the illegal wildlife trade is is a huge problem worldwide, and not just with mm-hmm. birds. I mean, I'm sure you've mm-hmm. heard elephants, tigers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you name sharks. You, you need For whatever reason, whether they're taken because they think their fin is good for them, for people medically, or people eat them, or they're exotic pets, or the ivory mm-hmm. from elephants, or whatever... It's a huge, huge problem, and it's causing a lot of the extinctions we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah, what I was specifically referring to is holding something as a pet, as a private person, because we do still get tigers and so on for zoos, right? Um, mm-hmm. And well, probably parrots in the future as well, but there are already animals that are illegal to be held as a private person, as a pet. Right. Yes. Okay. It's illegal. Uh, any wild animal is illegal to have as a pet. Um, I mean, I don't know all the ru- all the laws about it, uh, about other species, but I know in the U.S. you're not allowed to take in, let's say there's a robin outside. You can't grab a robin mm-hmm. and keep it as a pet. Even if it's injured, you're supposed to take it to a wildlife rehabilitator who has a permit and has had training on mm-hmm. taking care of animals like that. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, I find this balance incredibly difficult to keep because this robin example is actually perfect. Probably quite a few people have very fond memories of taking in a bird, taking care of it after it's been injured, and then releasing it back into the wild. And this is something that we can do in in a decentralized manner, more or less. But at the same time, in order to prevent abuse and the kind of, yeah, making parrots popular, for example, through these funny videos, and then people have more demand for it, which drives the poaching and so on. There's a whole lot more to think of. So sometimes it is just easier to say, okay, no, we're going to stop this completely. Like, you know, we'll just ban it outright. So I find this balance incredibly difficult to keep. Well, I mean, with I can I can mainly speak to parrots more than other species, but parrots are in a way kind of unique because of how extremely intelligent they are. Mm-hmm. So I have photos I could show you of birds in Latin America. You know, parrots that are like the you know couple of feet um, in size in these tiny cages where they mm-hmm. can barely move. I mean, imagine putting a chimpanzee in a tiny cage where it could barely move. Mm-hmm. Their their intelligence is pretty equivalent. Or even a dog. Keeping a dog mm-hmm. in a little cage all day. I mean, it's terrible. Um, and that's why the birds, a lot of parrots that are captive, will pluck their own feathers. Often they'll pluck themselves till they're bald. So it's not only about the extinction. 
but it's animal welfare in general, how you're treating mm -hmm. other beings um, who are suffering. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. because we want a pet to coo at once a day and then we ignore it the rest of the day, you know. Um, yeah. So it, it, I agree with you that, you know, you want people to be able to interact with animals and, and have empathy and enjoy them. And how do you balance that? I mean, I used to love zoos. I'm less fond of zoos now because Me too. <laughs> you're keeping them in that captivity, you know, so yeah. um, it's hard. It is, it is hard. But I do know with a lot of animals, including parrots, if we don't stop, they're going to just disappear. Hmm. So we won't have, certainly in the wild, they disappear and they'll take the ecosystems with them when they go. Yeah. And so we're, we're basically hurting ourselves in the long run. But, it, you know, you would hope people would think beyond just ourselves. It's not just about people. It's about all beings, you know, and wanting yeah. a world that's that where all beings can thrive, not just people. Yeah. Yeah. That is a very nice vision. I wish you all the best that what you're <laughs> right you. now works out. Thank Truly. you. Very interesting. Okay, so you already mentioned early on the way that you then got into Earth Regenerators was through an interview Joe did with Reverend Michael Dowd. What were your first impressions of Earth Regenerators and first steps on the platform? Well, I was very excited that Joe was writing the book because that's how it all started. And when I came, it was August 2020, so the book study group had already started. So it was too late mm -hmm. for me to join the study group. So what mm -hmm. I ended up doing is just kind of, oh, I, was, I printed out the pages and I started reading the book on my own. And mm -hmm. then it, I think it was that December or sometime that fall that he started the first learning journey. So mm -hmm. I've been in all the learning journeys, except I think I skipped one. Mm -hmm. um, and so I always loved the learning journey. And, and one of the things that really kept me coming back is, oh, my God, I found my people. Mm. Except, for, except for Laura Kim and a smattering of other people here and there, but really mainly Laura Kim. Most people didn't get me. They didn't understand the way I thought. Um, I, I would feel like I was talking, part of the reason I left being a climate activist is I mm -hmm. felt like I was talking to a wall a lot. And, you know, mm -hmm. and I started with that a long time ago and watching what's going on now, it's so disheartening because we saw, many of us saw what's coming now coming years ago. I mean, I Al Gore is also one of the people I really admire. He's taken a lot of flack for people accuse him of doing it for the money and all that. But he was very <laughs> earnest about this, like in the 1980s or 90s. And he was a senator before he even became vice president. He was trying to get yeah. people to wake up and people wouldn't listen. And I experienced that in my UU congregation. It, I kept at it, so eventually it got better, and people started becoming more concerned, and I was able to make some headway with it, but it was like pulling teeth to get there. Yeah. And I just got, I got tired of it, to be honest. And mm -hmm. also lobbying, you know, a lot of activism is about lobbying to get laws passed, and it just takes forever. 
Mm. And then there's a lot of compromise on the way. And then you finally get a law passed. And then it's like, oh, then there's a next step. And even that law takes years to implement. And it's like, mm. this takes too long. So, yeah. um, and, and the other thing about Joe and what kept me engaged, other than, so there's the camaraderie, there was reading his book, is that his recognition, and I agree, that we're already in collapse. Mm. And that we have to start from there, um, yeah. you know, doing what we can. Um, so, you know, a reason that I, there's two reasons that I've been so passionate about this for so long. It started off my love for animals and wildlife, wildlife conservation. Mm -hmm. And then when I became a mom, my, yeah. my, my daughter was born in 1998. And it was like, what kind of future is my child going to have? And I have mm -hmm. to do like Joe does for his daughter. I have to do everything I, that's within my power that I can to try to make it a hopeful future. And unfortunately, yeah. that's not going too well. <laughs> um, I, I, without going into too much detail, she actually is suffering some physical and even a little psychological impacts from bad the bad environment we live in. She has chemical sensitivities. She's the pandemic and the isolation from that. Um, I know a lot of young people are suffering in a similar way. And mm -hmm. it's really hard to watch. And uh, I just figure, well, someday when I die, I can say I've done as much as I was able to. You know, I tr mm -hmm. really tried <laughs> whether I succeed or not. You know, yeah. so uh, so that's a lot of what drives me. Yeah. But uh, I guess you want to know more about what I do with Earth Regenerators? Actually, before that, I find this okay. one of the most important points, actually, because we all have those moments where we feel like we're talking to a wall, where we feel like mm -hmm. this is just going to slow and it's never going to end, where we feel like, well, it's already too late anyways, you know, we're in collapse, like, why continue? Um, and you already started talking a little bit about why you've continued, but I think this is really one of the most important points, like in those moments where you probably felt tempted to just forget about it all again and, and just start a regular life. Why, why didn't you? I just can't. I can't. I, I don't know mm -hmm. what drives me because um, it's not like I grew up with activist parents, although my father was a very passionate liberal. <laughs> I did mm -hmm. grow up in a pretty liberal <laughs> household. Um uh, he would follow politics and he's very interested in it. And we'd have a lot of discussions about various issues. But the, the activist part came out just out of me um, on my own. I, I really don't know exactly why, but it became really important to me my whole life. I mean, my whole adult mm. life, I've always volunteered one way or another. Um, mm. and, um, and when you talk about you know, regular life. I mean, I'm, I'm far from perfect. <laughs> I mean, I live in New York City, you know, so for example, um, you know, uh, I have to drive a car. I don't have to, but I, where I live, it would be very difficult without a car. Mm -hmm. and, and even so, we get our groceries delivered to us, which in some ways mm -hmm. is good, but it also is on a truck, you know, drives mm -hmm. around, you know, um, you know, garbage is it uh, it used to be better here we used to they used to have a wonderful 
composting program, they do recycle in New York City, uh, but the mm -hmm. composting program stopped when the pandemic came along and they've yet to reinstitute it, although I heard it's coming, going to come back. And I hope so, because mm -hmm. we had much less garbage when yeah. we were able to compost. Um, but I would try, I try. Um, another little project I have, a regenerative project that was totally inspired by Earth Regenerators is I'm trying, I do have a little backyard. We live in a house in a more suburban part of Queens. And so I have a front yard and a backyard, and I'm slowly trying to plant more native plants and get mm -hmm. rid of the some, at least some of the invasive. Originally, I had this dream of like totally redoing and make a totally native garden, <laughs> but it costs thousands of dollars to pay someone to do that, and I'm not yeah. able to do it on my own. Yeah. So I had to scale back my plants, but even so, I have planted some native bushes. I hope to plant a little bit every every year to yeah. help the bees and the butterflies and the other pollinators. I mean, just to give you an example, why this, this has become more important to me is my neighbors on either side, who are basically fine, good people, right, hmm. paved over their backyards. No way. They had backyards that were green and bushes and paved them over, except around the edge, there's a few plants. Why? Because they want to have barbecues and parties and things like mm. that. So, you know, I read this book, Nature's Best Hope by Doug Tallamy. Fabulous book. He talks about something he calls a homegrown national park, where if people mm -hmm. lived in places like I do, where do native gardens in their backyards, then they create green corridors for pollinators and birds and such. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm trying to do my little piece of that here, but it's hard, you know. I, mm -hmm. I we have a beautiful tree in the backyard. Well, it turns out it's an invasive species called a Norwegian maple. <laughs> I don't want to cut down the tree. The birds are in there singing away. I'm not going to yeah. cut the tree down. So it's it's the whole thing is is complicated. But so I try to do the best I can. Yeah. Yeah, I think the native versus non-native invasive species discussion is really, really complex. Because, for example, over here in Baricha, we have uh, a little experiment in some tropic agroforestry. And there as well, it's not like we're only planting native species. We're going to plant some eucalyptus too create quick biomass we've planted different kinds of cacti that are not native here but grow just as well so i think that there some people are a little bit over purist but again it's one place where it's super difficult to find the balance yeah but congratulations to you for your progress every little bit counts no <laughs> so to continue the earth regenerator story i suppose um I would love to hear what your experience during that very first learning journey was, um, whether you could recount I, that, if you remember. I think it was a regenerative finance learning journey, and we had a lot of people in that. I, with any learning journey, the numbers go down over time, but it, mm. we've had between 30 and 40 people initially, um, and they quite a few stayed. And... Um, I mean, a lot of the concepts Joe introduced, and he's such a great speaker, and he's so smart, <laughs> and he knows so much. Um, so I learned a ton from him, but I love the way he made it interactive, 
that people could ask questions and have dialogues with him. I never, to be honest, when I followed him on Facebook, I never dreamed I'd someday be talking to him sem- face, mm. virtually face-to-face. Um, and, um, and again, a lot of the people I felt were kind of soulmates, like like-minded mm-hmm. people I have never met anywhere else. Um, and uh, not all of them, but a lot of them are my friends to this day. I mean, mm-hmm. um, that learning journey led me into a lot of the activities I'm in now, including I was very involved with the Project Incubator for a long time. Mm-hmm. I've kind of dropped away from that, partly because of my daughter needs me around mm-hmm. more, and that's a, not at a great time for me. Um, and I'm more involved with some of the other groups. So I've mm-hmm. you, you have to kind of pick and choose where to put your energy in yeah. the generators, particularly when you work, and I'm balancing it with, with my work, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. Beautiful. Well, here we go then. What are you working on in Earth for Generators right now? What are those groups that you're All right, let me go right through now? the days of the week. <laughs> on Monday, I'm involved with, the, I, I've been doing the book club now for quite a while. I love the book club because I've done other book clubs a little bit and they just always seem very superficial. But this one, we pick really interesting deep books and sometimes we do films or articles and we just dive deep into them. And the discussions are just so interesting. Um, so, so there's book club. Um, for a while, I was doing the Project Incubator, but like I said, I had to drop away. But I did hear about some really interesting projects, and I did present about One Earth there and got some feedback that was helpful. Um, there's uh, right now, Jonathan uh, and Victoria Cloud had started the Right Livelihood Group. So I'm involved with that because my goal is to not have to do the grant writing anymore and be able to just work with One Earth. And I've struggled with that all these years, how to get there, Um, just have been unable to raise enough money to support that. Um, The money we raise really mainly goes directly to the projects in Latin America. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so trying to work on that. And then through that, I've attended some of the gift circles that are fairly new, uh, a couple of those. And out of that, by the way, has come a a one-time event that's coming up, um, in early September, uh, a mini teach-in on animation. Because Mm -hmm. it came up in the gift circle that, uh, Alpha Low wants to do an animation about water, um, so me and another woman, Bunny White, uh, also has some experience with animation. So we're going to lead a little teaching on that. So that's kind of fun. Um, then I, I, I'm part of the pledge community for Barichara. I'm part of the Cascadia group, even though I don't live in Cascadia. Mm-hmm. I, I <laughs> couldn't give a thousand. So I wanted to be part of a group where I could give what I could. Um, mm-hmm. So now I'm attending the pledge meetings when I can. Oh, I skipped one on Tuesday. Every other Tuesday, the cultural center, culture center group meets. And I'm very much mm-hmm. part of that because I love art. Mm. So there I found another subset of my people, which is people who are like-minded, who love arts of all kinds, mm. all the arts. Um, so I've met some amazing people in there. Um, I'm part of the Barichara updates because I like to know what's going on and keep my foot involved there somewhat um and i joined the earth regenerators fund governance group 
months ago. Mm -hmm. It might be a year at this point. I don't know how long we've been meeting. Um, And I'm part of the core governance group there. And that's where I got to bring my knowledge of um, grant writing and running nonprofits and, and let I let that knowledge be of benefit to earth regenerators. Mm-hmm. And it's been so interesting because there's a, a man in there named Marceau who knows a lot about holacracy and mm-hmm. he's brought, so we've learned about holacracy. We've set up a way, this group interacts in a way that's different than all the other groups because we, um, we have roles, we vote on things, and it took us a long time to come up with a process that works. We even mm. do it asynchronously using Lumio, uh, which mm-hmm. MIDI introduced us to. Um, that's been a really interesting group and very inspiring group to be with. Mm. Um, I've done, like I said, all the learning journeys but one. And this is not directly through Earth Regenerators, but it is directly through Joe. He connected me and Laura Kim with Pro Social World, which mm-hmm. is doing a training for nonprofits that work in Latin America. Mm-hmm. So Laura Kim and I, we came in late, but we are now involved in a six-month program through that where we're doing a deep dive into Pro Social, which mm-hmm. also I've, I, I took the learning journey on Pro Social. And, you know, I, I'm really interested in that and the core d- design principles. I read the book, ProSocial, and all that. Um, mm. So it's just like one thing leads to another, you know, constantly. <laughs> um, I also met, there's a young man who occasionally comes into Earth Regenerators named Glory, who's from Uganda. He's in a refugee mm-hmm. camp in Uganda. And I've started mentoring him because he has an NGO that he needs to raise money for. So I'm helping him mm-hmm. with... Uh, learn. I'm teaching him how to fundraise. I'm not fundraising for him, but I'm teaching him how to do it himself. Um, and we meet every, once every two, three weeks, something like that. Um, and I, I almost feel like I might be forgetting some things, but uh, I am literally online with Earth Regenerators at least, I don't know, a minimum of two all the way up to five days a week sometimes. I have people mm-hmm. I consider friends. I've never met in person. There's been some I have met in person who have stopped by here in being in New York, you know. Um, But um, so I I almost feel it's funny, but it's almost like it's not a church, but I almost feel like it's my new church. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's like-minded community. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Like-minded community. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you uh, to you for all of your awesome work and engagement during <laughs> the last month's years. I really, really appreciate everything that you've done so far. Um, I would be interested to hear in some of the really cool experiences you've had in all of these various groups and activities and some of the challenges that you've come across um, and how you solve them, maybe. Well, let's, I guess, start with the challenge, challenges. One is time, just Mm -hmm. juggling the time, being able to do my work, dealing with the stresses of work, of, of my family's, um, difficulties with my daughter and, uh, you know, uh, other, other everyday stressors we all have. Um, so time is a challenge, um, 
you know, some groups I've, I've started with, like I was really interested in bioregional catalysts and I still think it's a terrific group, but I just couldn't take it on. It's too big, mm. <laughs> you know? Um, so in a way it's like, there's a little bit of fear of missing out. There's a little bit of, um, Oh, that sounds so great, but God, I just can't do another thing, you know? Mm. <laughs> um, so, so those are some of the challenges. Um, and, and, and also the time. Sometimes things take a long time. Like uh, in the governance group, sometimes going through the process, it sometimes seems so agonizingly slow. Mm. And I had, to lear- I had to learn to be more patient. Um, Joe was a good teacher about that, and Mitty, actually. Because I'd be always ready to jump to action. And Mitty would be like, no, no, wait. We should think about this more. We should take our time. And I'd be like, no, no, no. We got to do And I kind of learned... Yeah, you don't always want to just jump in. Sometimes you need to. Sometimes it go mm. takes too long, all this emergence stuff. So you have to find a balance between that. Yeah. Um, it's a little hard for me because I feel I don't know if I'll ever get to Barichara. You know, in, a, in the ideal world, I would like to go there. Mm-hmm. But in addition to the pandemic, we're still living very carefully because of my daughter's medical issues and my husband has some medical issues too so i've i had COVID early on thank god it wasn't too terrible but they haven't had it and we want to keep it that Mm. way um but the other thing is i have severe food allergies i'm severely Mm -hmm. allergic to corn (laughs) so i fear oh barry char would not be uh, no, exactly. You know, so I, I mean, if I had an anaphylactic reaction by eating something, oh boy, it could be in real trouble there. So I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever get there. I did I did go with Laura Kim to Nicaragua in 2017 as part of a small group. And they, she, we picked that country partly because the food was safer for me. And it was a wonderful experience. So I have been to Latin America. Um but so those are some of the challenges. Uh, great experiences. It's been a lot. Um, for example, um, I guess you know Joe Krieger, right? I think he's not involved. personally. I've heard his name a few you times. Heard, yeah, he's the one who did the podcast about Laura Kim. Mm-hmm. Um, so we connected in the Project Incubator, and I suggested Laura Kim as a possible interviewer, interviewee mm-hmm. for him. And he made it happen, and they did an amazing job. Oh, my God. His mm-hmm. Outside In podcast, um, you could go listen to it. It's on poachers and protectors. Um, mm-hmm. And that that was great. Um, and uh, there's so many. <laughs> so many great experiences. Uh, the, the books uh, that we've read together and discussed, um, the, the friends I've made, I'm, I'm really good friends somewhat. Well, I mean, we only talk once in a while, but I feel a real connection with Emily Scher- Scherning. I, I have trouble saying her last name. Sorry, Emily. Uh, but she's, she's an earth regenerator, but she's a working mom. She has three kids, so mm-hmm. it's hard for her to attend much. But she's amazing. She's doing... Uh, she does YouTube videos, and she has a website on something called American Resiliency, where she literally has gone state by state and talked about climate change and how it's affecting each state. And I just, mm-hmm. she's so, so many people inspire me, you know, mm-hmm. JP. Oh my God. JP is so wise. And it just, there's just so many amazing people. It's like, I, 
I was getting whiplash in the beginning, going from one to the other, like, you're amazing, you're amazing, you're amazing. <laughs> uh, so I'm sorry if I didn't mention you, but you're all amazing out there. That's been huge for me, is just the people who are involved. And seeing what Joe has done, watching the progress he's made from, I was there when he was first just tearing out the invasive grasses and started planting. And now he shows the videos of where they've gone, you know, what has happened and how beautiful it looks. Um, I helped build the Barichara website. That was a fun mm -hmm. project that I worked on. Um the whole governance group and, and helping that evolve. And now, oh, I'm also involved now in this new governance jam that's happening um, to mm. try to rethink governance now that Joe is stepping away. The Culture mm. Center, uh, I've been involved with that since, since the beginning, and we just had our first uh, campfire. That was really great, mm -hmm. where people presented some of their artwork. Um, another mm -hmm. amazing person, Maya, who is just so good at, at um, things I guess you'd consider more spiritual. She's just, her and Gail Burkett just have this knack for this stuff mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that I don't necessarily have. So I could just go on and on, but that, I think that's a good sampling. Hmm, <laughs> sounds amazing. <laughs> Are there any other experiences with Earth Regenerators or One Earth um, that you would like to share that you think are memorable or interesting for other people to know about because you learned something important? Well, with One Earth, there's just a lot of stuff going on right now. So I'll just some fun. Oh, I didn't mention my book. I wrote a children's book. It's called What Would the Parrot Say About Parrot Conservation? And it's meant for kids like between the ages of like eight and 12. And uh, it has a story in the beginning that teaches about why you should not uh, keep parrots as pets. And then there's a whole section in the back that's like um, uh, parrot facts, learning all about parrots. And uh, <laughs> the book has been translated into Spanish. And uh, that partly happened because I'm involved with a man whose passion it is to get science books into the native languages of indigenous people. So it's also been mm -hmm. translated into Mayan. And we're going to be mm -hmm. translating it into a couple other indigenous languages. And I'm writing a song to go with it. <laughs> so that's Whoa. that's been a really fun project, still in the works. Um, and then... Um, there, we're getting some attention in the press. Um, there's a freelance journalist who is working on an article about our project in Honduras. It's going to appear, I'm not sure if it's going to be in print or on the website of National Geographic sometime this fall. Um, so some things like that. Uh, HBO, there's a show called How To with John Wilson. He, we do little bird walks in the New York area. So he came on one of our bird walks and they're going to have a little segment on that. Uh, that's probably next, that next fun. spring. And, um, so we're just, you know, this is all just to get attention for our work. So more people mm -hmm. will hopefully support what we're doing. And, um, and then this campaign about not keeping parrots as pets. We're just starting to work on that now. And we're hoping to grow it really big um, and to have an impact. Um, mm. So, yeah, I guess that those are those are some of the highlights I can think of. Oh, wow. <laughs> very, very active. I like it a lot. <laughs> Thank you. 
So that's all of the things in the past and what you're doing right now. What's your vision for the future? What are you most focused on in the next few months, next years? What would you like to see happen? Well, I mean, my passion and focus is on biodiversity loss. Like even when I was uh, more active with Climate Reality Project, I always try to get people to focus on the intersection between the two because climate change impacts biodiversity loss. Biodiversity loss impacts climate change. You can't really separate them. And a lot of people, you know, now a lot of the world is aware that climate change is a huge crisis. But a lot of people mm. still are not aware that the biodiversity crisis is as big, if not bigger, than climate change. We lose the bees, mm. you know, we're in big trouble. So, um, yeah. so my focus tends to always be on that. Um, uh, I, on and off, has suggested that through Earth Regenerators to do some kind of project on biodiversity loss. That's another thing where I really just don't have the bandwidth to to lead that mm. now um i was hoping maybe to partner with someone but i haven't found anyone who has the time and a similar passion as me where mm. maybe we could do something together and um then maybe i could work on it more if it's not just me um mm. and you know that's what my work with one earth is about really um, mm -hmm. with the focus on parrots. Both Laura Kim and I happen to be parrot lovers and bird lovers in general. <laughs> so that's where we put it. But, you know, and anything with biodiversity loss, uh, I think is really crucial. So um, mm -hmm. until I can't do it anymore, that's, that's where my focus will remain. Mm -hmm. Exciting. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> um, my last question that I had set up for myself was, For people that are not yet in this space, um, what suggestions do you have to them? Is there something that you usually, like a book that you suggest them to read, a video to watch or something like that? Um, how do you approach people that are not in this space yet? And if there's a listener to this podcast that is not in the regeneration space yet, how would you suggest them to start? Um Yeah, that's a hard question. I mean, certainly in it, when I was doing the climate work, Is, it was hard to get people engaged, hard to get them to want to deal with it. I mean, partly because it's scary stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it would kind of depend, like, on who I'm talking to. In fact, I had this little mini project in mind. I don't know if it'll happen. Uh, but in, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It might just be in the U.S. Is this a project called Little Free Library. And what they are, these mm -hmm. little structures that people put up like in their front yard or different places and people put books in there and it, it looks like a little mm -hmm. tiny house and there's a door and you can open it up <laughs> and you can just take a book for free. And if you want, you can put books in there too. So it's a way to like exchange with your community. And there is one in my neighborhood that I go to sometimes, but I thought that maybe I put a little free library in front of my house that would just have environmental books in it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not an easy thing to do. I'm not a, that handy, you know, and my husband is not handy at all. So <laughs> if I had a husband who was like a carpenter, I'd have him make me one. Or you can buy them, but they're hundreds of dollars, you know, and I just need yeah. those hundreds of dollars for my bills. So um, so I don't know if it'll ever happen. But like for my neighborhood, there's that book by Doug Tallamy called Nature's Best Hope. Um, which if you live in a more suburban kind of neighborhood, 
in a Western country, I would really Mm -hmm. recommend that book because it's all about Mm -hmm. how you really can make a difference in your own backyard. And even if you don't have your own backyard, maybe you could just do a little window box or something. You know, there are things you can do. Um, Laura Kim has written a a few books. One of them is called Conservation in Time of War, which talks about her experiences in conservation. That would be really good. Certainly Joe's book, uh, The Design Pathway, great, great book. Um, Visiting the website of Reverend Michael Dowd. He he was one of the first Mm -hmm. people to inspire me. Certainly Jane Goodall, anything by Jane Goodall. Uh, Al (laughs) Al Gore as well. Um, You know, it depends on what your interests are. Um, But there's so much out there now. It could almost get overwhelming. Another great person is uh, (laughs) Joanna, Joanna Macy who's very much about mm-hmm. keeping hope alive while you do this important work. Um, so, yeah. so, oh, and Charles Eisenstein has some really great books on mm-hmm. the subject too. So those are the some, some of the ones that come to mind for me. And if, if you do go to uh, our website is oneearthconservation.org. We do have a book mm-hmm. page there where you can see uh, more about uh, what we have to offer there. Beautiful. We'll link to that in the episode description. Awesome. Amazing. Wow, it has been so much fun (laughs) to talk to you, Gail, really. Is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners, fellow Earth Regenerators, and new people to the space? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's more for the new people, um, because I think those of us who are already involved know this, that one way to really fight the, the despair and the, the feelings of frustration, anger, hopelessness you may feel with what the way things are going is to get out there and do something. And it doesn't have to be mm. get on a plane and fly to Barachara and dig in the ground. It can be as simple as mm. educating yourself, talking to people. Um, if you feel it's important, voting, legislation, something in your backyard, uh, finding community where you are. There's so many ways to get involved. Just get involved. Mm. And if you're looking for like-minded people, Earth Regenerators is a great place to start doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful. I like that as a very beautiful <laughs> end note. Thank you, Gail. You are an amazing person. Thank, thank you. you for everything that you do. Thank and you. thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate the time. Thank you, Jacob. This podcast is a decentralized platform for the regenerative community. Anybody on Earth Regenerators can propose or record their own episode. So if you're already on Earth Regenerators, contact Jacob Seidler if you have an idea for a future interview or audio essay. And if you're not on there yet, come and join us for regular learning journeys on the pathway to regeneration, inspiration from the many regenerative projects reporting there, and a wonderful community woven around mutual support. Just enter Earth Regenerators into your search engine and find a website or follow the link in the description. Let's regenerate the Earth.